Good evening. Thanks for coming. Uh, praise the Lord. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've said it will do in us. Help us to take heed. Thank you that you are our hope and stay, our righteousness, our peace. Let this all be about you. Change us for the better. In Jesus' name, amen. First Corinthians. Chapter 9, I have uh, an aggressive agenda tonight, so we'll see how it goes. So last week, I was, we were in 8, and I was mentioning how I believe uh, 8 and 9 are closely related. Same topic, even 10. By the time you get to the end, which I kind of read, so we have this um, pattern going through. And uh, again, when Paul wrote it, he expected people to read right through it. So we could, this is the Apostles' Doctrine. So as he's teaching on a topic, he uses things. Those things can each be an in-depth study. So there's a lot here, but to, I think sometimes I didn't want to break it up to not get the main message out of it because Paul had an intention when he wrote it. And we were talking about um, this law of love versus the law of liberty, and they had, uh, talking about temples uh, to idols and a meat market, and people with their conscience being seared or governed, and how do we treat one another as the body of Christ. So I think we're going to be able to, to learn a lot because the Bible tells us that we're to love God and to love others. And that fulfills all the law. But tell an unbeliever that, and they'll agree with you, to love others. But what does it even look like? So as we have this, it explains it. And this is a very practical, a lot of Paul's writings, the beginning's doctrine, and the end is practical. And uh, we see practical ways. What does it actually mean to love people? And he kind of goes through that and explains it a little bit. Um, just in 1 Corinthians 8, it's a short chapter, but just to go back a little bit, verse 9. Well, verse 8 says, Food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat it are we the better, nor if we do not eat it are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. We spent the whole time last time pretty much talking about that 10 for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols and because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died perish means to rot obviously if he's a brother he's not going to lose his salvation for doing something now the question is, is are we fruitful and are we moving forward 12, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And we see this picture, I guess the Lord kind of, I've heard it before, it's likened to an immune system. 
So all of a sudden you're walking and you have an immune system. God made us that way. There's nothing by chance. Desires aren't by chance. Things are here to paint a picture to teach us something about God. So we have a conscience, right? So why do we need an immune system? Did Adam have an immune system? Was there even germs to kill or anything? But it's a picture. And a conscience is supposed to let you beware. So that tells us two things right off the bat. There's things that can invade, and we need help. I need things from the outside coming in that are a problem, but there's also things that are inside, right? Jesus even said that out of the, out of the heart flows all of these things. So now all of a sudden, it's not that it, our conscience doesn't make you not sin. It just lets you know. It's like a speed limit sign. A speed limit sign doesn't make you go the speed limit, but it does let you know, hey, you're driving too fast. So your immune system is there, and it's, and it's in, in everybody. You can read Romans 1. It tells us that you have a conscience. The conscience tells you whether you've done something. If you have a guilty conscience, it tells you that you've done something wrong. Without even knowing what wrong and right is, there's something in us. God has placed his law in us. And I liken conviction to the Holy Spirit and your conscience part of that, which tells us that we need that because we're not all it. God does something in us. We need help. And he's not surprised that we need help. He knows that we have a sin nature. You were born that way. It's not your fault you were born with a sin nature. The question now is, is what are we going to do and are we going to get help? Right? Our flesh doesn't get better. We get saved. We think we would become better. Well, you look better. But any time you go back in the flesh, you can be just as bad as you were before you were saved as anybody else. We're not better than other people. We just have help. We have hope. We have a Savior. He saved us from the penalty of our sin. He is saving us from the power of sin. He's in the process of that, which means it's not done yet. Sometimes when we sin, I don't know why we get surprised when other people sin. God's not surprised. It's, it's, a, it's more of a miracle when we don't sin, because that means God, it's a miracle. God did something other than what was natural. It's natural to sin. And we see the world falling apart, and sometimes we're amazed, like, wow, I can't believe they're that bad, and we shouldn't be amazed that they're that bad. What would they be like without God? You read stories in the Old Testament, well, people aren't that bad right now. You know, they were pretty bad back then. Well, they're pretty bad now, too. It's the same heart. Now the question is, is, is there an immune system? And, and, you know, this country had an immune system by our forefathers, by how things were set up, and it's kind of dwindling away. We have it. And I think of my own self, a conscience, then you get saved. You have conviction of the Holy Spirit. Those are healthy and good, and we have it because we need it because we're bad. And I think of like a shot or an injection. That's the Word of God. It's something from outside that we put in. So we're here, and we're reading it. So their weak conscience was the ones that were actually legalistic, more legalistic. Well, you can't do that. So we talked about that last time. Our soul's infected with a sin nature. He doesn't say you need to get a better soul. He says you need a new heart, which is something that comes in. The Holy Spirit is God himself, and he comes inside of you. He is sinless. So now you've got those two, and are they in agreement? We want to walk with him. And the question is, I've said that before too, right? Every heart, God has this picture. You can't find it, but the picture is here. Has a, a throne and a cross. And if we're on the throne, Jesus is on the cross because what we're doing is sin and it put him there. And if we allow him to be on the throne, then we're on the cross because they can't rule and reign together. We talked about that last week. There's a lot of things. People don't make up gods for pain. They make up 
you know, the gods are the things that they lust after. It's the human nature, the things that they want. So there isn't the God of the fork in the eye. Nobody would, <laughs> people don't do that, right? The things that they make gods of are the things that they, the, the, the natural body desires and wants and where you would go without God. What does, so we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. That's when conviction of the Holy Spirit comes and your conscience bothers you. It's when that's not happening. So now the question, it's not sin to be tempted, and it's, now the question is, is what are you going to do with it? And we have an advocate. We have a throne of grace in our time of need. That's, this is like the best news in the world, because we have a place that we can go. And some people would be like, it's an insult saying that you need that. Well, once you're there and you understand it, you're grateful because you know it's true. We do need help. So chapter 9, verse 1. Again, he just mentioned knowledge multiple times throughout all of chapter 8. There were people there that were causing division because of what they knew or what they were teaching. And Paul says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal or the authority, or the, I'm sorry, certification of my apostleship in the Lord. You are my certification in the Lord. I am an apostle, so we need to, we understand that. We know Paul was an apostle. We know there were 12 apostles, or were there 13? So <laughs> Judas was an apostle. He's not anymore. Then there's uh, uh, some people will today even claim to be an apostle. So that needs a little bit of definition because he's going to go on and talk about this a little bit. So we believe and teach at Calvary that there were 12 apostles. One was replaced and that they ended. There's 12 thrones. You read Revelation. There's stones. There's it's government. Um, yet you'll read other people mentioned as an apostle. The word apostle actually just means sent one. So it, Jesus personally picked them, all of them. The 12, Judas fell, then he picked Paul. He showed up and he personally anointed them. And if you read Matthew 10, the gifts that were given to them, he said he called his disciples unto himself and gave them the ability to dot, 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 in the names of the apostles. So they were called apostles once they received those gifts. So if somebody today claims to be an apostle, well, then you should have the gift of healing because that's what apostles have. Read your Bible. <laughs> if you... There's, and, and all of the apostles in the Bible, including Paul, were able to do all of those things, which is amazing because they were doing the same things Jesus was doing. If we get there to verse chapter 12 and 13 and 14, it talks more about the gifts. But just to uh, talk a little bit about it, I'll, you know, for time's sake, I'll just go there. Um, Chapter 12, verse 28 to 31, says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually, 27, 28. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have the gift of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? So Paul is an apostle. He came to the church, and there were other people there that were claiming to have the same authority that he had. 
And, he, and so what did he do? He actually came, he planted and started this church. And we're going to find out as we go through this that, so now the question comes, what did the church look like? So at Calvary Chapel, here we are, we're going to apply this today. Um, they're set up a little bit different. I mean, the Catholic Church, we all know, has a pope, and then it has this whole hierarchy through it. Well, each of us are set up independently. Chuck, Pastor Chuck didn't want to be a pope. He's not the head. So now Paul is there, but he's not there every day. He is not the senior pastor of that church, but he was the apostle to that church. In, in that sense, you can say we don't have one, but again, small a apostle, people were sent, right? Pastor Chuck started a church. Bill Gallatin left and started. He was an apostle. He came, he started a work here. Pastor Jeff left there, started this work here. So there still is a heritage. So what is an apostle? First, an apostle. First, the church has to get started, right? Then prophecy. How do you run the church? And then teachers. And there were people here that were teachers, but they weren't teaching correctly, and they were now conflicting with the teaching that Paul had. So he's making this case um, it says in verse, um, well, just to add on to that thought, in chapter 14, um, the apostles or the prophets, right? First of all, chapter 14, one says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mystery. But he who prophesies speaks edification exhortation, and comfort. So that's a ministry that should be in the body, and there were people there that were doing it, but these people that were speaking to them weren't speaking comfort to them. Uh, it says in verse 37 of chapter 14, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, Desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. And there's people there that are creating things other than order, and they're telling people things that are contradictory. So Paul goes on in chapter 9 and verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. So they were there, and they were testing him. Right? Even he wrote to the church at Berea. They checked the word. And it's good to check with the Word of God to make sure everything that he was saying was correct. Except they weren't saying things that were correct. They were causing strife, causing division, and telling people that it was okay to be carnal. They were claiming Paul did things that weren't considered apostolic, so they were questioning his right for things. It says in verse 4, Do we have no right to eat and drink? No, he wasn't saying that he had to starve or fast his whole life. Basically, they weren't supplying the money for him. So who do, you, do apostles get paid? Right Again, it's a strange thought for us here. We don't have those. But back then, there were apostles. They all went out. They all spread. And he's going to now make this whole case for this purpose. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Verse 5, do we have no right to take along a believing wife or a sister as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. So Paul is saying, first of all, you're doubting my apostleship. You're having people come in that contradict what I'm teaching and saying that they're better teachers and I'm wrong. And I'm, and, and I'm doing things that I, I, that I shouldn't be doing or I can't have. But all the other apostles, it's not a sin to do that. 
the brothers of the Lord, Peter, the other apostles, had wives with them. And they were being taken care of. They had a travel companion. People were shipping them together, paying for their right to, to go there. And it says in verse 6, or is, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? And, and that just basically means that if he didn't work, somebody would have to supply their supplies, to feed them, give them money, take care of them. It says in verse 7, who goes, whoever goes to war at his own expense? And the answer would be nobody. We don't tell people to show up to go to war and bring their own M16s. And if you have an F16, that'd be great, bring it with you. <laughs> the, the military supplies that for them. I don't, nobody here has an F-16 today. Oh, man. <laughs> that would be wants an F-16. Because then, uh, never mind, I won't go to the Second Amendment because we might be able to fight Biden then, but because he's got them, so he told us. Or is it only Barnabas? Who goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? These are all practical things that they all did, and they knew it was only common sense. Verse 8, do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? And this is the kind of thing that makes me scratch my head. Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Have you ever read through Deuteronomy? you ever read that verse? You ever read through Jonah and read, they did. Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. That was prophetic of the Son of God being, who would have come up with that? Who's going to read an ox? Paul's like, well, obviously it wasn't about the ox. And I guess I never thought about it. I don't know if you know this or not, but ox can't read. So Moses didn't write that down for them. <laughs> they can't read this. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? We know God is concerned about animals. He tells them to be treated well. He does, in the end of Jonah, said so he was going to, what about, the, you want me to smoke everybody? What about the animals? He, even care, he cares about animals, but he didn't put it in the law because he was worried about the ox eating. Verse 10, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partakers of this hope. God put that there because the worker that's doing the work, the ox, and if you're a servant of God, think about that too. An ox is a sign for something that works hard. It's known for strength. We, you should be working for God hard. You should be doing your job hard if you're doing it for the Lord, but you should get to be taken care of through the work. And just think about that, too. A lot of times we get to Leviticus or we get to Deuteronomy or we get to these parts of the law that we're reading and we just go through fast because we want to get through it. But there's stuff that's there. Paul got it. The Holy Spirit can enlighten you. There's things that are in there that are spiritual truths. The law is spiritual. We are carnal, but the law is spiritual. Ask God to open your eyes. What is this saying? Sometimes you can read something and it almost seems out of context, but it's perfect for you in your life for that day what you're going. Or it will be if you just pay attention and try to memorize it. And it might be, what, what does an ox plowing in a field have to do with me? I go to work on a bucket truck or something, or whatever you do. But there, it's practical, and it's real. You just have to allow God to, to speak it to you. It tells us, you don't have to turn there, but 
on this note. He says it's for our sakes, he who plows should plow in hope. And he says it's a, it's a truth. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 9 and 10, sending out the disciples, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money bags, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. If somebody is taking care of you spiritually, then it is only right that you take care of them physically, according to Jesus, according to Paul, according to Moses, evidently. <laughs> if you could figure that out reading about Acts. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, so there were evidently people there, like maybe the pastor of the church that was there every day, taking care of them, and they were feeding them. Paul was like, the, the word of God says it's right that you would put and invest your physical means into the gospel being sent forward. And I don't know about you, if you were into stocks or whatever, you look for something that makes money, you, know, but you take it out if it's not doing well, and we know spiritually we're putting things up in, forward into heaven. Could you imagine when you give money to a mission, you're actually partaking with them and you reap the benefits of it. The Bible says that if you're going out to war and the others that are staying behind watching the stuff, they all partake of that same thing. So now all of a sudden, if you're seeking the Lord and you're trying to invest wisely and you want to help the kingdom, you should be looking for things that are doing kingdom work. And there's things that you can invest in. Can you imagine buying stock in the Apostle Paul? What kind of heavenly rebound rewards does that bring back? It's, it's not only right that they do it. It would be good to do that because if you help support him, everything that he's doing goes on your credit too. There's rewards in heaven, and, and how we invest into heaven matters. It says in verse 12, If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So now he's getting to the point. He didn't bring this up because all of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, you're going to argue with me? By the way, you should be paying me and you're not. He's not throwing it in their face. He goes on later to say that I don't even want to get paid. He just told them they needed to deny themselves things that they have a right to so they don't stumble somebody else. And Paul's basically saying, I am not asking you to do something I'm not willing to do myself. These are rights that I have, and I laid them down for you. All I'm asking you to do is what I'm doing. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul just wanted Christ to go forward, the gospel to go forward. Verse 13, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. So isn't it funny? It says, you can see the offerings are actually in italics. The, the greater is the altar, not the offering. And those who serve at the altars partake of the altar, is what it actually says. 14, even so, the Lord has commanded, 
and I guess that's in Moses through the ox, that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written what I'm writing right now, these things, that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. It would be better for me to die than for me to make my boasting void. I'm here for a reason. I don't want to ruin it. Paul had enough issues. He had some anger issues. He had some times of non-compassion. And uh, he struggled like we all do. We all need a Savior. Um, but I don't know about you, but I've prayed, you know, am I good? if I do something, if I fall away, if I walk away from you, if my life gets so bad and I'm not doing anything but just embarrassing myself and embarrassing you, please just take me out. I know where I'm going. Even if I fall and do bad, I know where I'm going. I don't want to stumble people. I don't want to make God look bad. I hate being ashamed. He's gracious. He does what he does. Paul's like, he, he actually was taken up to the third heaven. He knew where he was going. How are you going to scare him? You're not going to scare him with death. Heaven's great. I just don't want to, I'm here. I'm here for a reason. I want to fulfill my reason. Second Corinthians 11, it's going to read 11 verses. It says in verse 5, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, he was more of a study person than an elegant speaker. Yet I am in knowledge. I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need... So Paul was there, and he was hungry, and he had natural things that he needed. He goes, was I a burden? I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. As to the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. There were people there that were trying to exhibit the same authority as an apostle as Paul had, and they were actually doing it, and Paul had harsh words for them. And he's like, I'm not going to let this, my need, stumble you just as I'm asking you to do for people with meat. This is my answer to that question. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. 
But if against my will I have been entrusted with his stewardship, what is my reward then? Is it getting paid for doing my job? Is it so that I can fly and get moved around? No, it's that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. And I think the, the key here is he can't make them do anything, right? So if somebody has authority, it's because, it's like respect. You can't, you can't really demand respect. Respect has to be earned. People give it to you. An authority, I, I can't, nobody can claim to have an authority over you, but you can allow them to be your authority. Paul is not saying, hey, I want authority. He's basically saying, you should be giving me authority. I'm not going to ask it or take it from you, but read the Bible. Look, look around. What am I doing? Pay attention. Am I trustworthy? Should I be given that? Verse 19. Paul saying he gave up his liberty so that he could love them, which is the whole point of chapter 8 and 9. Verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew. You could stop right there and say, what? He is a Jew. But, but he's talking, we'll, we'll keep reading. That I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Then he says, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Paul didn't say I became a drunk to save the drunkards. He didn't say I became an idolater to save the idolaters. He's basically saying I met people where they were at so they could bring them to a place where they needed to be. I mean, if all of a sudden there was a new rule, you know, or you, or you end up being asked to teach at a church, but they only wear suits. It's like, is it wrong to wear a suit? Is it wrong, is it wrong to require someone to wear a suit? Maybe. But if, if I went up there to make a point and I didn't wear a suit because I think God gave me a word for him, no one's going to listen to me. Just wear a suit. Who cares? It's not that big a deal. There are things that aren't that important, and you just need to be discerning. But he never compromised. Verse 24, do you not know, and again, that's like a slam, because that's all they did is claim to have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, love edifies. That's the whole point of this whole thing. Then he's like, really, you don't know? Don't you know that those who run in a race all run? Really, Paul, if you run in a race, you're running? <laughs> But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. He's not saying that you need to, okay, out of all the people here, somebody today is going to get saved. Who's going to get them? And it's like, I want to be the one. And like you're knocking each other over to find out who's going to do it. He didn't say it's important to win. He just said it's how you run. Run as if you're going to win. Take it seriously and go. Verse 25, and everyone who competes for the prize, it doesn't say everyone who wins the prize. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it 
to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Now we know that Corinth had huge games, second only to uh, the Olympiad in Greece, and their people would come. So he's telling them things, just like when he was in a farming community, he used farming stories. These people were very athletic or watched it. It's like they sat around and watched TV all Sunday, football or something. I don't know, crazy people like, <laughs> like I would be. 26, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, unless when I have preached to others, I find I myself should become disqualified. You know, I I do have a right to get paid, Paul says, but I'm not going to demand it because I don't want my message to be tainted. I do have a right to have a wife or for you to pay for her to travel with me. I don't want to demand that because you don't seem to think that is appropriate for me. I shouldn't have to get a job, but we know he made tense there. He had a career he could fall back on if necessary. He did what he had to do because it was important at that time, because they weren't mature enough and ready to take it. Yet they're saying, what's wrong with these people that they, they, eat, you know, they can't even eat meat from a temple. Paul's like, well, you won't let me work. You're exactly the same as them. And isn't it funny that our sin always looks worse on somebody else? The thing that bothers you the most about someone else's sin is the thing you struggle with. I just underlined in verse 25, competes. And everyone who competes, we ought to be competing. We ought to be trying. We ought to be putting forth effort. And it's not about winning or losing. just want to run. In verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Sometimes I do things I don't want to do just because I don't want my body to rule me. My body, especially the older I get, just sit in the chair. I like sitting. If you're, Some people might not think that other than my wife. <laughs> um, most of the time I'm running around, but that's usually just because of a lot of caffeine. But it's, it's, a, it's either good or bad, but there's something in me. When I have something to do, I just feel like I got to do it. And if I decide not to do it, I'll do nothing, and I'll just sit there. I sit a lot at home. I pull out of my driveway. I'm, like, insane. Some of you understand. Some of you are like, yeah, no, he's insane. But if I'm on my way to the ATM, I'm pulling out of my driveway, and before I back out, before I'm putting it in drive, I'm reaching in my hand. I don't even know I'm doing it. I'm pulling my wallet out to get my ATM card out. I'm not at the bank yet. That's the next thing I have to do. I, like, have to do the next thing, and I'm, like, compete. Discipline your body. And again, a perfect exercise for that. I mean, if you want to be able to push people, you you lift weights, right? If you want to deny yourself, what's a good, how can you exercise to deny yourself? Fast. Fasting is a good way. For one thing, it just tell yourself no. And there's a a very, I think it was Malcolm Wilde, somebody in Florida at a pastor's conference used to say every morning when he gets up, gets out of bed, stretches, walks into the bathroom, looks in the mirror, stares at himself, and says no, multiple times. I begin my day by telling myself no, no. Bring your body into subjection. What does that tell you? Your body has desires that will go their own way if you let it. And we know that because it happens all the time, every day. Every day we sin, every day, if you just live your life naturally, natural things happen, and you're, 
natural circumstances and desires and things come in. If you don't start praying before you get in your car, you'll be yelling at somebody else driving. It just happens because it's in our heart. We shouldn't be surprised when we do it. But road rage. Chapter 10, moreover, brethren. So chapter 9 was Paul saying, I am a good example of denying myself so I don't stumble the brethren. They were buying meat given to temples, the idol worship. And now chapter 10, he's basically going to use Israel as a bad example, a warning. And God only put it down in the Bible because it's for our understanding, so we can learn from it. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He's he's painting a picture. Pastor Jeff used to teach, I'm fully convinced. Um, the promised land was not a picture of heaven. So I know there's some old Baptist songs that sang that, but the people were taken out of captivity. They cried out unto the Lord. They had a deliverer, right? And uh, Moses is a picture, but the law can only take you so far. But he was a deliverer. He delivered them, and they came out, and they went through the sea. So there's a whole generation of people that were slaves in Egypt that came out, and they were guided by God by a pillar of cloud during the day and fire by night. They actually had direction. They saw it. They went through a sea. They crossed over, and it's a picture of baptism. It's a picture of being saved. Right? Paul says that multiple. They were baptized in the sea. So now it's like this young, and what's on the other side? Canaan, right? And Canaan is, well, you've got the, Battles, right? In the, in the promised land, they had manna every day, but it stopped when they got over. This is a, a mature, spiritual, hard walk. So he was saying they all went through the, the sea, they ate spiritual food, and they drank of Christ. And that, and that rock was Christ. So they had this beginning of this relationship. But it says in verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased how not well-pleased was he? For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Well, that's not very pleased. <laughs> and uh, as some pastors say, this is like maybe the biggest understatement in the Bible with most, with, with, with most of them or with many of them. But maybe you should say all but two of them. <laughs> Only two of them made it. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now all of a sudden they're going through what happened to them. They had to go through the wilderness and very young, if you look at it in a believer's life, and they're as a picture of salvation. They just get saved and they're going and they had to trust God and they had to walk with God and he took care of them. He did everything for them and there came a point in time when they had to trust him and they didn't want him. And it tells us in Hebrews that they didn't mingle the word with faith. 
So if you don't walk by faith, does that mean you're not saved? Well, you have to have faith to be saved. But do we always walk by faith? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So he wasn't pleased with them. It doesn't say it wasn't a picture of somebody unsaved. It does, just because you die doesn't mean they all died. They were scattered in the wilderness. That doesn't mean they went to hell either. We all die. <laughs> it, just, it means, okay, there's a point in time when I'm going to move on. There's a point in time. You're either going to be a good example or a bad example. He might allow you to stay on because you're going to be a bad example. He let them go through this. They're a bad example so that we can learn from it. Unfortunately, sometimes we don't learn from it. We have to go through it ourselves, just like our kids. It's a lot easier to learn from other people's mistakes. And then he points out their mistakes. So he does it sometimes to show us something. But this is the good news, is even what did Lot do right? I mean, he, I don't even know if he was supposed to go with Abraham, but he took him. And what happened? That It said he looked, he saw, he put his tent towards it, he went in it, next thing you know he's in the gate of Sodom. What was attractive to him about Sodom? Well, it was good for money. He had a lot of cattle and it was good grazing down there. But he didn't just go outside of their area. He was right in it. So if you looked at his life, you're like, man, that guy's got issues. He could have been scattered. But the New Testament says his righteous soul was being vexed day by day. And sometimes that's us. And guess what? He chose to go there. God still said his soul was righteous. He didn't become righteous because he didn't go there. He became righteous because of who he trusted in and what he did. And his life was a bad witness that his family ended up not doing well, that Sodom didn't do well. I still like the whole, another side note, rabbit trail, rabbit trail. That wasn't in my notes, but neither is this. But, so how many people have to be in the city before God would save it? I don't think it mattered how many people were there. That's me. Abraham bartered with the angel of the Lord. And, well, if there's 50, would you, would you spare it? And he's like, yeah, if there was 50 there, I'd spare it. Well, what if there was 40? Well, what if there was 30? I think if there was 2,000, he'd have spared it because he would have, he still would have destroyed it, I mean, because he was taking out everybody before he did it. They weren't appointed to his wrath. He's sitting there having this argument. He's like, don't worry, I'm taking Lot out. He didn't even know that yet. <laughs> Lot's going to be fine. If they're not okay with me, they're not, they're not going to be okay. If they heed the warning and walk away, they'll be fine. If they don't, they're not going to be fine. Anyone that heeds, he happened to know how many were going. So now we're getting these examples. It tells us in a... Verse 6, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Spirit loves, the flesh lusts. Anytime you're in the flesh, you're going to lust after evil things. That's what the flesh does. You can't stop it. The question isn't, well, I need to lust less. Lust less. Yeah, I said there I'm not even going to say it again. <laughs> the thing is, I need to walk in the Spirit. Because if you're in the flesh, you can't help it. You're going to lust. That's what it does. So it's an example for us. So now when you find yourself lusting something, that doesn't necessarily, I can't believe, I thought it was better than that. Your flesh is never better than that. The Holy Spirit's convicting you. What you need to do is repent. 
the flesh will say, yeah, I can't believe you blew it. I, I, you gave in to me. You need to try harder. God is like, no, you need to stop. You need to stop trying. You need to let me do it. And sometimes when we need him the most, we think he's the most angry with us, and then it's the hardest to go to him. He says it's a throne of grace. And you have a time of need. Come boldly. I know you need me. He's not surprised that we need him. He's the one that told us. He sent his son. He had to come. He is our only hope. Verse 7, And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And we know that's at the bottom of the mount, right? The Ten Commandments, one of the greatest miracles that never happened in the Bible. <laughs> Aaron says, I threw all the gold in and a cow came out. <laughs> well, it does say he fashioned it, but that's what he told Moses anyways. It, so what happens when you throw gold into a fire and a cow comes out? Well, obviously you take off your clothes and you have an orgy, right? That's what the cow told us to do. That's what they did. It's like, don't listen to cows that are talking that early were fashioned. Seven, do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. And we know that's regarding Numbers 25. And to explain that, in Revelation 2, so that's the time Balaam and Balak. Are you guys familiar in Numbers with Balaam and Balak? So um, Balak didn't want the people of Israel passing through. He came and got a, a prophet, and the donkey talked to him. And next thing you know, he's there, and he was being paid to curse God or curse the, the people of God, and he couldn't do it every time he had to bless them. And it says, you know, basically, what, what am I paying you for? And then it ends. Well, the very next chapter, without any notice, it says that the women from their tribe came over and slept with the men of Israel, and they committed sin. That's what this is referring to. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. If you go back and read that in numbers, 24,000 died. But this says 23 in one day, so evidently 1,000 died the next day. So in one day, 23,000 were killed. It tells us in Revelation 2.14, the letter to the churches, but I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat the things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So evidently, without it telling us in numbers, Jesus knew. He told Luke, who wrote Revelation, to let us know that he couldn't curse them, but he said, if you live in such a way, God's going to have to judge you. So he, couldn't, he wouldn't curse them in the name of God, but evidently he taught people how to stumble Christians. It tells us in verse 9, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And that's in Numbers 21, and that's when uh, they were there and uh, they were getting bit and they were dying. And Moses was told by God to put a bronze pole in the wilderness and said, if somebody just goes and looks at it, they'll live. And uh, we know that if they went and looked at it, they did. And some people, 
some people said, no, that's too easy, they can't work. <laughs> and they died. <laughs> the gospel is that easy. Bronze is the type of judgment. The serpent on the pole is the type of Christ bearing the, the sin. It says in verse 10, Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And uh, that's Numbers 14 and many other places. If you want to feel bad about yourself, the next time you murmur and complain, look up all the times that the people of Israel murmured and complained. And I don't think it comes close to the amount of times I do or we do. Murmuring and complaining, God doesn't like it. Basically, that's why somebody uses his name in vain, right? GD, basically, something bad happens and they blame him. When you murmur and complain, you're complaining about God. How come I, well, how come God didn't? That's really what you're saying, because God's in control of everything. Now the question is, is, are we content with godliness? What do we think that we need? When you murmur and complain, there's something that you want that you can't have, and it's like a little baby sitting there kicking and screaming and having a little fit. And God's a good dad. He's patient. He puts up with us. <laughs> He's a good God. Verse 11. Now all these things happen to them as examples. God's just not talking bad about them behind their back, nor is Paul. He put it there, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we know that he won't allow anything. There's always, we don't have an excuse. It doesn't mean we always take it. If we always took it, we would never sin. It tells us in John that if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. But when we sin, what do we do with it? We can't say, well, I didn't have a choice. No, there was a way out. Okay, I guess I'm an idolater then. <laughs> Because my flesh lusted for something, I gave into it, and I just need to repent and come back to the cross and say, save me. Grace, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? That word communion is koinonia, it's fellowship. We have fellowship with the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So we all partake of it. It goes inside of us, and the same thing in me is the same thing in you. The Holy Spirit in me has no problem with the Holy Spirit in you. We don't have to make unity. We have to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's there. Now the question is, am I walking in it? Eighteen, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifice as partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? And again, he's getting back to that question in chapter 8. Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And he ends up concluding. Verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And again, he said, Knowledge puffs up, love edifies. 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Now he's summing up the end of his answer to the question that they asked in chapter 8. Is it okay to eat meat offered? 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? In other words, it came out of a, a meat market that they offered to Zeus, but I'm giving God thanks for it. I know it's not Zeus that's giving it to me. I know it's not the leftovers that Zeus had on his plate. Zeus is nothing. There's a, a demonic power behind the people that are worshiping Zeus, but he's not real. The demon's real. There is no Zeus. I'm giving thanks to God for what I eat. 31, therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Become all things to all men that you might save some. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. He's going back to chapter 9. Imitate me. I deny myself. Follow me. We should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ, but only follow me as I'm following Christ. So I think we can uh, get through 11. I know you guys are hoping I would spend more time in head coverings, but (laughs) we'll go fast. Good excuse. I'm running out of time. Chapter 11, verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Most people think he's saying that tongue-in-cheek because they don't remember him in all things and they're not keeping the traditions that he gave. Yet there are things that are traditions that are good. And I know just as a general note, again, I wasn't planning on going here, but head coverings, is, for instance, is a good, let's use this as the same as foot washing. You know, does, did Jesus talk about foot washings? Yes. Did he do it? Yes. Did they teach it in the Gospels? No, they didn't teach it in the, in the epistles. It's not really talked about. So if Jesus did it, it was in the Gospels, they did it in the book of Acts, and it's taught about in the epistles, the letters, then we should probably do it. It's a good tradition to keep. Well, they didn't teach about it. They taught it, it 
Foot washing is a picture of serving. Serving is all of those things and all of them. It's good to serve one another. But foot washings aren't. Communion, we're going to take communion later. Did Jesus do it? Was it in the book of Acts? Did he teach about in the epistles? Yes. So there's traditions. You remember and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. The Apostles' Doctrine, 11.3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And that word head is controversial in its meaning, which changes everything. And some people think like the head of a river is the source of the river. So some people take that route. I don't believe that's what it means. Um, head can also mean authority, and that fits better. So it's not saying that the woman is a source for a man, but there's, it's, a, it's about having a proper authority. And I think as you read it, it explains itself easily. But I want you to know the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his God. But every woman, he explains that later, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, which would be her husband, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. And in that culture, that means you're single or prostitute, basically means you don't have an authority over you. And a woman shouldn't be praying against what her husband wants. If her husband says, I think we're supposed to do this, and she starts praying for something else publicly, well, she's basically not having her head covered. That's the only thing that makes sense to me here. Verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, depending on the culture you're in, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image and the glory of God. So man is made in the image and the glory of God. Therefore, he should have his head uncovered. He's supposed to be hearing from God, and he's put in authority in this place. But he is... The woman is the glory of man, for man is not from woman. And again, if it meant head, that wouldn't be true. Men, and he explains it later, because men do come from women, <laughs> if it's the source. But he's, it's about authority. That he is the image and the glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nine. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And if you didn't understand why, it's because of the angels. If you don't know that, it means ask Paul. <laughs> but evidently, there's angels around here, and they understand authority fine. Any angel that didn't obey God is called a demon, and they're booted. They understand this whole thing. They're probably amazed that Jesus became a man, and we're little sinners running around here without any authority. And they're like, so when we get it right and when we pray before God and when we're calling him Lord and we're coming into his presence, I mean, read Revelation. They do it well. And they're here. When we gather, there's angels here, whether we see them or not. We know they're here. Nevertheless, verse 11, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. It's not about who's better. Well, I can live without you. You can't live without me. You need me. It's basically, they're equal. They're equal in quality. There's just, there has to be rank. You can't have two people in charge. You know how many, there's one archangel. Arch means head. He's the head. If there was two, then there wouldn't be order. 
And again, we just read that in the last chapter. He wants everything done decently and in order. And he's basically saying to do things decently and in order, there has to be an authority. Somebody's got to have the head authority or else it's not going to work. You can't go to work and listen to your boss when you want and don't when you want because things, I mean, you can, and it, but it doesn't go well for the company or usually for you eventually. You can't go out in the street and say, oh, I don't have to listen to the speed limit. There's got, everywhere we go, there's an authority. Authority comes from God. He's the one that has authority. He has to have things set up in a way that it works. And he puts people in charge and authority. Our president has been given authority by God. He's the president. He isn't surprised that he's there. It's to, it's to accomplish his purpose. Right? We know that Jesus himself was sitting before a guy that was king that had been given authority from God. And he was going to put him to death and then have to be accountable to God for it. It doesn't mean that he does everything great, but he looked right at Jesus and said, is what they're saying about you true? And he didn't answer anything. He says, don't you know I have the authority to put you to death? And Jesus didn't say, you don't have any authority over me. He said, you wouldn't have any authority if my dad didn't give it to you. You have authority. Jesus acknowledged he had authority. Now the question isn't, do you have authority? The question is, what are you going to do with it? Because you're going to be accountable for what you do with it. So a woman has to... If she follows her husband's words, I mean, most men will tell you what they want. Men have to follow the Lord's leading. What does he want you to do? You think following your husband's hard. Even knowing what God wants to do is hard, much less following it after I hear it. And neither of them are easy. They're both impossible. Everything that's spiritual is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now the question isn't, am I going to submit to authority? It's what authority am I going to submit to? Sometimes I think I need authority. Verse 13, judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Authority. Order to keep order, not in order of importance, not in order of quality. There has to be a hierarchy. We know Jesus isn't less than the Father, but God is his head. There has to be an order. Everything's in order. Doesn't mean Jesus is less. There's just an order. Verse 17 And uh, this is fitting because we're taking communion. So I'll read, if you want to come up, Rob, I'll read uh, to 26, and then we'll sing and uh, come up and take the, get the elements, we'll take them together. Now, in giving instruction, they do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry, and another is drunk. And I think the proper interpretation for 22 is, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> he says, what? <laughs> Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God 
and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? You're leaving me speechless. Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we read earlier, that's the koinonia, it's fellowship. It's you and him becoming one. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then uh, we'll sing, but as we're... uh, singing just to meditate the next portion that we're going to read afterwards it's labeled examine yourself so as you're worshiping and getting ready we have flesh which means we're prone to idolatry which he just gave us many warnings tonight and uh where am i at what's going on examine yourself and realize that it's a throne of grace that we're coming to and what this represents is what made that throne available to us. Starting in verse 27. Take them back to your seats and hang on, we'll take it together at the end. Challenging portion. It says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood, of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Eating in an unworthy manner, some are dead. Obviously, I think if you eat it like right now before I say two, God's not going to kill you. (laughs) It's not what it means. It doesn't mean if you took two, you're in trouble. Um, If you're not saved, then what do you think about that? What is it? If you don't believe Jesus died for your sin, then you're basically acknowledging, yeah, he died. But I'm not letting him in. I'm not letting him live through me. And it did me no good. You're basically just saying, yeah, I killed him. There, we, we know it's not that I'm, I messed up or that I did a sin that's horrible. It's that when you don't believe the gospel, and I don't believe Jesus died for me, and again, I've said that multiple times before, right? When Jesus, when the God the Father, when you stand up there and he looks at you, is Christ in you? If the Holy Spirit's in you, he is the seal. He is the down payment. He is what gets you into heaven. So God looks at you. He either sees his son, or if he doesn't see him, he sees the one that killed him. Because he's not there, and he died for you, and you wouldn't let him in. So you are either going to inherit the best thing you ever had, that you can't even imagine unless the Spirit tells you, or the worst thing you've ever seen. And the last thing you're going to see is perfect love. And then you're going to be cast into outer darkness. 
the gnashing of teeth, what you could have had, regret. And this represents what he did for us, the body and the blood. And as I just read, when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as we take the body, we remember Jesus. And we know that it's going in. We have fellowship with him. We have communion with him in the spirit. That thing, and let's, uh, let's partake. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood. And again, a covenant. Do this as often as you will and drink it in remembrance of me. And God promised, and God can't break his promise. There's a new covenant, and he died so that it can be true. Let's partake. Father, we just thank you that you made a way. You invited us and revealed that way to us. You are worthy to be worshipped. Lord, you never ask us to do anything that you didn't yourself first do. And then you don't even ask us to do it. You say that you'll do it again through us. By your spirit, we live and breathe and have our being. So, Father, we just thank you that when we fail, when we mess up, we have a, a throne to go to a dad who's on a throne, and it's a throne of grace. Keep us there. Lord, I'd like to say I, I can come there when I need to, but Lord, I, sh I should never leave your feet. Thank you that you are as good as you say that you are, and that you can't lie, and we can trust you, and you're a living hope. Just bless my brethren, brothers and sisters, because of your son, Look down upon us and have mercy. Thank you for being good. Amen. Thank you.